If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your scripture journals, I want to invite you to open with me to Exodus in chapter 23. Exodus in chapter 23. If you're in a scripture journal, that'll be on page 110, Exodus 23. We're going to read uh, verses 20 through 33. 20 through 33 uh, in our time together. Explore this. We covered uh, uh, quite a large chunk um, last week as we continue our series through Exodus. Look at the book of the covenant. This is the tail end of the book of the covenant. And we pray it'll be fruitful for you this morning. So Exodus 23 verses 20 through 33. Also behind me on the screen, my translation as well for you to follow there. Let's go ahead and read this together. Exodus 23, start verse 20. God's word says, Behold, I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Prezites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. In January of 2020, I had to spend two weeks in Louisville uh, for back-to-back doctoral seminars. And so you can imagine I had a decent amount of times on my hands in the evening. So one night, I decided I'd go to the local IMAX theater and catch a movie there that had just been released called 1917. Have any of you guys seen? All right. All y'all need to go watch that, okay? It turned out to be a wise choice. I was I was completely, if you've seen it, you're completely engrossed in it from uh, start to finish. Like, it, it was brilliantly shot. It's shot like it's one continuous take, okay? And it, I could say it's probably one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. Well, if you're unfamiliar with the movie, the movie's set in World War I, and it tells the story of two British soldiers who are tasked with delivering a stand-down letter across enemy lines to one of their units because that unit plans to attack in the morning. Um, but the Germans know about the attack, and so they will be ambushed. So if the letter doesn't get there in time to the commanding officer, it could mean the death of 1,600 of their troops, including the brother of one of the soldiers tasked with carrying the letter. And the tagline for the movie is, time is the enemy. Okay, time is the enemy. Because the two soldiers must get the letter there by morning, right? So before the troops can advance, they got to get this letter there. Even if it's a few minutes late, death, destruction, and defeat are sure to follow Every story has a villain. And for 1917, the real villain is time, just like the tagline says. Well, reflecting on this movie, Brett McCracken wrote at the Gospel Coalition, something pretty profound, I want to read it to you. He said, every one of us confronts this villain whose weapon is simply a ubiquitous presence that constantly reminds us our time is limited. Our lives are like vapor. What will we spend these precious, this precious life doing? Will we seek to preserve ourselves and lengthen our lives as long as we can? 
Or will we give ourselves away to a cause bigger than ourselves, even if it costs us? He continues, the task given to the soldiers in this movie is seemingly impossible and probably a suicide mission. And the boys know it. Lesser men would still refuse to go, knowing they'd probably die. Yet Schofield and Blake, these main characters, receive the grim orders from the general. They respond with a firm salute. This resolute gesture, made with unmistakable dread in their eyes, captures the beauty of duty and simple obedience, of saying yes to something costly and hard, simply because an authority above you gives the orders. In a follow-your-heart world where do-as-you're-told deference to authority is tantamount to blasphemy, the moment feels radical and refreshing, and the rest of the film only builds on it. And then he concludes like this. 1917 captures the beauty of men taking the fight to the villain of time by giving everything they can in the few moments they have. Eternity is the prize anyway, so why not spend your life on something greater? It's a movie about seizing the moment, recognizing the urgency of the mission, and choosing costly obedience over self-persevering comfort. In this way, it's also a reminder to Christians to stop wasting time squabbling about trifling things. God's mission is greater, and his call is urgent. Let's crawl out of the miry trenches and fight for what's matter, what matters. 1917 is, a, is special for a lot of reasons. But the unflinching obedience of the protagonist stands out. This is especially true in our modern culture of rejection of all authorities and systems. We live in an environment in which we are allergic to words and concepts like obedience. Sure, we can say that the soldiers in 1917 obeyed out of duty or because they had to, but there's something praiseworthy in the fact that they obeyed unhesitatingly. Even though they knew it cost them, even though they knew it wouldn't be easy. And obedience stands at the very heart of our present passage this morning. At the end of the Book of the Covenant, which is You'll remember from last week, a series of case laws that teach Israel how to live in community. Here we have more grace from God and a reminder that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings pain. God here points Israel forward to the day that they will get to the promised land to receive what God has promised them and their forefathers before them. Here is a reminder that God keeps his promises and a reminder of what this whole journey has been about. He, he, does, he does not want them to lose focus. He doesn't want them to forget why he brought them all this way out of Egypt. And he doesn't want them to forget that the, the grace that he has given, is giving, and will give should be responded to with glad obedience. And we'll, we'll see this as we work through this text. So let's, let's do this. Four points, again, we'll see together, all right? Point number one, the Lord leads follow him. The Lord leads, follow him. And this comes from verses 20 through 23. See again what the Lord says in verses 20 and 21. He says, behold, I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him, the angel, and obey his voice. Don't rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. Then in verse 23, he says that the angel will go before them and will bring them to the land that he has promised. And the angel will blot out the inhabitants of the land. <laughs> Excuse me, <coughs> of the land. Now you notice, if you look down at your scripture journal or your Bible, this passage, it alternates between warnings and obedience. You see it? <coughs> this is the basic structure of the text. So look again at your text. 20 and 21 is a warning to listen to Yahweh's angel. 22 and 23 is a promise of blessings if they obey the angel. 24 and 25a, that is 25, the very first sentence, is a warning against worshiping pagan gods. And then 25b through 31 is a promise of blessing for obedience. Then 32 to 33 is a warning against worshiping pagan gods. Again, so you have warning, blessing, warning, blessing, warning is how this passage lays out. And God says in 20 through 23 that he's sending an angel or literally that word that's translated angel is messenger to lead them to the promised land. And they got to listen to him because he is Yahweh's representative. So in essence, 
In essence, what the angel says is what Yahweh has told him to say. So what does that mean for disobedience? It means that if they disobey the angel of the Lord, they're actually disobeying who? God himself, right? I see this side of silent once again. Uh, the Lord, they're disobeying the Lord because listening to the angel means obeying God because the angel is, in some sense, an extension of Yahweh himself. It's kind of like, you remember back in chapter 16 when the people were hungry and they were accusing Moses like, did you bring us all this way so you could kill us with hunger? And Mo, do you remember what Moses said? He said, you're grumbling against us, but who are we? You are, your grumbling is actually against, who did he say? You're, you're grumbling against the Lord, not me. Why did Moses say that? Because Moses was not acting of Moses' own accord, was he? He was simply obeying the Lord. And so it is with this angel that the Lord will send. He's not going to act of his own volition, but only what the Lord tells him to say and do. So they're listening to him is tantamount to listening and obeying Yahweh himself. Now, commentators and scholars, as they like to do, debate about the identity of this messenger. Who is this messenger? Who is this angel? Is it a theophany of the Lord? Is it really the Lord? Is it a hum some human messenger? Is it an actual angel? Is it the pre-incarnate Christ? Opinions abound. Now, getting into this is beyond our scope and purposes, okay? So we'll err on the side that this is an actual angel from the Lord, all right? Not a human, not, but a supernatural being. And the point of the passage is not to focus on his identity anyway. The point of the passage is that the Lord plans to go before the people, to lead them, to instruct them, to actually go and do work on their behalf before they even get there. That, that's the point here. The point is the Lord will lead and he is worthy of following. Notice that the Lord doesn't move when Israel moves. Israel moves when the Lord moves. Who's in charge here? Not Israel. They don't know what they're doing. Do you think two years in, in Exodus, is that fair to say? Israel does not know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing at all. And they have proven to this point that they do not know what's best. Following the Lord leads to life. Following self leads to destruction. Because you look and you see how the obedience of 20 and 21 is tied to the blessing of 22 and 23. If the people follow the Lord's leading and they do as he says, they will possess the land, right? And their enemies will be vanquished for them. So by implication, if they disobey and they go their own way, what will happen? They won't possess the land and the enemies will remain. If they decide they don't like God's plan, if they decide they want to go the way they want to go, when they want to go, how they want to go, they can't be surprised when their plans fail. Can they? Like, you truly imagine if God hadn't led them up to this point in Exodus, where would they be? You know where they'd be? They definitely would not be at Sinai. You know where they'd be? They'd be in Egypt, wouldn't they? Because at every point it got difficult... <laughs> They longed to be back in bondage. So if they had their way, they would have turned around and went back. They would never choose to do the right thing. They would always choose the wrong path, which leads to destruction. Don't miss this, friends. The Lord's leadership is always, always, always the right choice. Even if it looks difficult, even if it sounds uncomfortable, even if it's not the path we would have chosen, God's way is always better. You know, since I have three daughters, I've seen every princess movie that's ever been made. Okay? I've told you this. I know the songs. All right? I can quote some of the lines. But they all, all their plots are basically the same. Do you realize that? And the message of them is the same as the messages for almost all media today, which is follow your heart, right? Follow your heart, you guys. And it's pretty explicit. Like culture does not hide that your heart should be your leader. Is that fair to say? Like in one of my least favorite princess movies, Frozen, one of the, one of the main characters sings that infernal song, Let It Go. 
And one of the lines is, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And girls everywhere were singing this song and torturing their parents, right, by making them play it in the car. But the message is horrible. But it's the same message as every other show and movie. Rules are bad. Systems are there to keep you in bondage. Freedom is found in doing whatever you want. Just follow your heart. You know what's best. But then you read the Bible, and the Bible's like, your heart is a moron. Which all of us can say, by experience, has proved to be true. Right? <laughs> Let me tell you, brother, sister, love you. This is why I'm telling you this. Your heart is a dum-dum. My heart's a dum-dum. And they're unworthy guides. Only Christ is a worthy guide. So let me ask. What currently guides you? Are you following the Lord and his word? Are you following culture? Are you following the person that stares back at you in the mirror? Now, we don't have the promise of an angel like Israel had to guide us. But what God says in Exodus 23 about an angel is a shadow of what Christ is the fullness of. God's name is on Jesus too. God also said of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration something similar here. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Do what he says. And what Jesus said is what God said. So to reject Jesus is to reject to, to reject uh, Jesus or to reject what Jesus said is to reject God in the even greater way than if Israel disobeyed this angel. Says, this is what the author of Hebrews says of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As always, Jesus is better, and he is the perfect representation of the triune God, and he beckons all to follow him. So friends, I ask again, who are you following? Even better, he gives the Holy Spirit to those who follow him who is a better guide? Who's a better guide than him? Who's a better guide than the Holy Spirit? Who? Your dummy heart? Is that a better guide? Culture? No better guide than the Spirit of God. Jesus intends to lead you to a newer and better promised land in the new heavens and new earth. But in the meantime, he intends for you to follow him in the here and now. In every aspect of your life. What does that look like? That looks like obedience, which leads us to our second point, point number two. The Lord blesses, obey him. The Lord blesses, obey him. And we see this in verses 22 through 23 and 25b through 31. So as noted a moment ago, God alternates here between commands and the promise of blessing. Here and in the rest of the Bible, we see a simple formula. Do you see it? Obedience equals blessing, disobedience equals death. Okay, that's a simple formula found throughout Scripture. Why? Because obedience is obedience to the God who created all things and knows how they are to be properly used, and he knows using creation in the wrong way never brings life. But it behooves us to note again the order of things. The commands here are given after the Israelites have been redeemed. And thus, obedience is not a condition of salvation, but an expectation of those who are saved. Do you see? God has rescued them from both physical and spiritual bondage, and now he expects them to respond by following him in obedience. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Again, it's not that God saved Israel so that they could go from slavery. We've said this over and over and over again. It's not that he saved them so that they go from slavery to self-willed freedom. He saved them so they go from serving Pharaoh to serving Yahweh. Like even the New Testament uses this language of going from a slave to sin to being a slave to God. Right? 
Obedience comes partly because they need to know how to live in covenant with God, and partly because that's what makes sense in response to God's incredible grace, right? I mean, you just think about how this section of 20 through 33 starts. That's the start. What's the very first thing that it says? God promises something, <laughs> right? God promised them to send an angel to guide them, to give them instructions, to go before them to the promised land, to take care of a large portion of their enemies. Is that not incredible grace? Isn't it? Like God could have just pointed the way, right? Or, or left ancient road signs or printed them some map quest, right? And been like, good luck. He could have said, y'all get ready because y'all have to deal with the entirety of the Amorites and like build up your army and get ready to fight the Amorites and Hittites and Presites and Canaanites and Hivites and Jebusites all on your own. I'm not going to help. He could have done that, right? You want the land? Go get it. <coughs> he could have even said, here's the book of the covenant. Let's have a trial period and see if you can obey them, right? And then if, if you do obey them perfectly, we'll go to the promised land. He could have done that, right? That would have been fairly reasonable. But what does he do instead? He pursues he initiates, he saves, he brings them near. He gives them the Ten Commandments in the Book of Covenant just so they'll know how to live <laughs> as intended. And then promises for them to follow this angel, for them to follow and for them to listen to. And then they don't have to guess anything, right? And he'll pave the way for them. Is this passage not utterly soaked in grace? Now, even the commands and warnings are filled with grace and mercy and the tender kindness of God. The problem is, since we're allergic to obedience and submission, even to the creator of the universe, we see commands to obey as legalistic headaches designed to cramp our style and put us in bondage. But that simply can't be true. In fact, it's the reverse here. Let's, let's think about this, okay? Since this passage is about Israel's road trip to the promised land, Let's illustrate it by thinking about a road trip, okay? Y'all went on road trips this summer? You don't have to answer that. I know you did. I've seen your social media, all right? Y'all love that jump, right? <laughs> it's not a bad thing, okay? I just, I just know. Let's say you sat your kids down one evening, okay? And you said, kids, we love you. I want to do something for you to enjoy. So as a gift, we're going to take you to Disney World, Okay? And the kids are super excited, right? Like it's a commercial for Disney. And they're pumped, jumping up and down, just stoked to ride all the rides and eat all the food and excited to go tell the lady who's dressed as Elsa that her song is Christless Garbage, right? But then you say, now listen, okay? You say, listen, there are some rules, okay? Some things we expect from you. You need to pack your bag and you need to pack this, this, that. And when you get in the car, you need to stay on your side. You ever had to have that talk with your kid? Stay on your side, keep your hands to yourself. And you can use your iPad or whatever for only X amount of time. And the rest of the time, you got to stare out the window like we had to do when we were your age, right? And, you know, listen to mom and dad, stay together, et cetera, right? Et cetera, et cetera. All, the, all these rules. Okay, now here's my question, okay? When you give those rules, are you being a legalist? <laughs> because you gave them some rules. They need to follow. Which are intended to make them have a good trip. Does that make you a legalist? Are you being hard and severe? Because you have some things they must do en route to the most magical place on earth. And are your calls for obedience because you want to make sure they don't have too much fun. Or because you want to ensure that they actually have the best trip possible. The good news is they're going to Disney World. The, the rules are so they can enjoy the good news. Do you see? That's what God's doing here. That's what obedience is about. God's command for obedience is so that people will enjoy the blessings he intends to give them. The way they're designed to be enjoyed. That's what the whole law and Ten Commandments are for. God's not trying to cramp their style. He's showing them how to flourish. For us, the goal and the order is the same. We are saved by Christ and his work on our behalf. We have received grace. Salvation is a gift. There's absolutely nothing we can do to earn or merit our salvation. And yet, 
Christ calls, Christ and his word calls us to respond to that grace with glad obedience for our good and his glory. Peter ends in his commentary said it well. He said, being in Christ does not mean that obedience is no longer required or that it is optional. The exact opposite is the case. Being in Christ means an ever deepening of one's joyously obedient relationship with him. In fact, this is important, it is only God's people to whom the commands are given, for they alone are able to obey. I think that last sentence is especially important to note. Not only does Christ give us the motivation to obey by rescuing us through sheer, sheer grace and mercy and loving kindness, but he enables us to obey. Enables us. Makes us able to obey by sending the Holy Spirit. Like, what else do we need? What else do we need? If we truly allow the grace of Christ to sink into our hearts and to saturate our very bones... Obedience should be something we desire. Obedience should be our delight because our affections have changed and continue to change as we grow in Christ. And how do we grow in Christ? Here it is, through obeying Christ. Some people seem to think that since Christ died for their sins that they can now do whatever they want. But my question to that would be, okay, but what do you want? That's the true question, isn't it? Because if you truly understood the cross and the empty tomb, if you truly beheld Jesus and what he's done, if you actually have internalized both your need for grace and how much it cost Christ to get you grace, then what you want should now be what Christ wants for you. See, even what you want should change to conform with Christ's desire. Obedience brings blessings because obedience means more of Jesus. And obedience means blessing because Jesus knows better how we should live than we do. And the goal of salvation, did you know this, isn't just to get us to heaven, it's to get heaven in us now. Christ means to make us new creatures, which means new affection, new allegiances, New eyes that see through the lenses of the gospel. It means to reject that which hurts us and embrace that which humanizes us. This is what we forget about sin. Sin isn't just breaking the law in the same way that the, breaking the speed limit of a faceless government is. Sin dehumanizes us because it's going against God's created design for us. Christ saves us so that we can pursue living the way we were intended. And obedience is a delightful recognition that Christ desires the best for us, which inevitably brings blessing, namely the blessing of delighting in Christ as he delights in us and as we please and glorify him through glad obedience. Michael Reeve always, always puts things incredibly well. If there was a top 10 list of books, I think every Christian should read, this quote that I'm about to say comes from one of those books. It's called Rejoicing in Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, the spirit of adoption brings me to share the son's own affection for his father. And for the first time, I fulfill what I was made for. I love the Lord my God. Like Christ, I find I want to be with him. I want to pour out my heart to him. I want to please him. You see? And find my rest in him. The more I know myself to be a true child of God and the more I see of Christ, the debtor I find myself to sin. It, it allures me, but not as it did. I find old sinful desires dying and new holy ones springing up. I find myself longing, yearning to be free of the sins I once held so dearly. I have a new heart after all, the heart of a child of God, and it feels and wants differently like Christ. Israel's obedience to Yahweh was to be one of glad delight, not rigid duty. To obey would enable them to enjoy God's promises in the way that they were meant to be enjoyed. To disobey wouldn't mean they wouldn't be saved, or they were already saved. It would mean they would not enjoy the blessing of salvation and of the promised land to the fullest. But there's something else Israel needed to see in regards to obedience. They needed to see that they didn't need what sin and idolatry promised because they would have all they needed in Yahweh. And this brings us to point number three. Let's look at this. Point number three, the Lord is one. 
serve him. The Lord is one, serve him. And this comes from verse 24 and 25 and 32 and 33. Did you notice, did this stick out to you when we were reading this passage? A great concern of this passage is that the Israelites will go to the promised land and will adopt the gods of the current occupiers of the land. The people will think they can serve Yahweh and serve the local gods of the pagans. And the first four of the Ten Commandments clearly forbid this. But God knows that Israel's propensity will be to worship idols. Such is the human heart, right? Which is why one reformer said our hearts are idol-making factories, which again is why you should not follow them. So <coughs> several times in this passage, we see a commandment that they not only reject the pagan gods, but that they actually smash them and remove them from the land. The temptation must not even be allowed to remain. Now, there are three prohibitions given concerning the worship of idols here. Did you see them? Number one, they must not bow down in submission to their authority. Two, they must not allow themselves to be drawn to serve them. And three, they must not adopt the customs and practices of those worshiping these gods. Israel must do everything they can to eradicate even the pillars and the altars of the idols and smash them to avoid even the temptation to worship them. But now here's the key that we have to see. Israel was to see that they had no need for the idols because God was to be their sole source of all things. You look and you see this list of blessings that he will give them in 25 to 31, and you might think this is some kind of like ancient prosperity gospel, right? That's, that's kind of how it reads. Like, this is a text I imagine the Osteens and Fertics and Myers of the world enjoy preaching, saying that if you just have enough faith, right, you'll get good health and material prosperity and a long life, etc., etc. But is that what's going on here, you think? No, of course not. Let's consider the context. 25, look how it starts. You shall serve. That's an important word there. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless you. And then it says how he will bless them, right? He'll bless their food. They won't lack bread or water. He'll bless their crops so that there won't be famine. He'll bless their health and their fertility, their longevity, and their victory over enemies will be taken care of by God. They should serve God and he will give them these things because they will be tempted to serve idols in order to get those things because pagans you probably know this they had an idol for the crops they had an idol for fertility they had an idol for long lives they had an idol for military victories everything god promises to alone do for israel the pagans had individual gods for so god knows Israel will be tempted to go to these idols and try to appease them in order to be blessed in these areas. Do you see? Douglas Stewart, in his commentary, said, The ancient farmer thought the gods were absolutely essential to the agricultural process and that the way to involve the goodwill of the gods on behalf of one's farming was to worship them. The essence of worship was providing food for them in the form of sacrifices. When Israel would arrive in the promised land, the temptation to plant as the Canaanites planted, to cultivate as they cultivated, to harvest as they harvest, and to worship as they worship would almost be irresistible. Since all these were thought to go together as part and parcel of farming in any given locality, God is telling Israel that they don't need the idols. They don't need to try to appease these man-made hunks of stone to be blessed because he will provide all that they need. The message is, rely on me and I will provide. But there's a revealing truth of all sin here. Because all sin begins with breaking of the first commandment. Doesn't it? All sin. When you get Christ, what you're being told is that he is all you need. Not only is sin fundamentally dehumanizing, not only is it soul crushing, not only does it ruin lives, but you simply don't need what it's offering. You say, you don't need it. You have Christ. He's everything. And why give in to sin, which always promises, you know this, always promises what it cannot pay. When you have everything that you need and more in the person of Jesus who offers 
not a thing, but himself, holy and unreservedly. We give in to sin and idolatry, these counterfeit gods, because we see in it something we think we need. It's fundamentally a forgetting that God is all we need and more. But the fact remains, in this life, we will be tempted to give ourselves away to idols. Is that true? And we'll be hoodwinked into thinking they will give us something we think we need. Or culture's telling us that we need. And they will dazzle our eyes our entire lives. You know, in the classic book by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, we see our main character, his name's Christian. He's making his way to the celestial city. And so if you know, even if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you know the general gist of it. It's, a, it's an allegory for the Christian life, okay? And we're told Christian and his companion, whose name is Faithful, are on their journey, and they arrive at this place called Vanity Fair. And yes, the magazine is named after this, okay? Bunyan says... This is not a newly erected business, okay, but it's actually an ancient enterprise. He says this fair, it's open all year round, and you can't avoid it, okay? There's no circumventing Vanity Fair. If you are going to go to Celestial City, you got to go right through Vanity Fair, okay? And what is Vanity Fair? Every allurement you can think of. They sell land, homes, pleasures, gold, silver, pearls, around-the-clock entertainment, fame, fortune, titles, kingdoms, Everything, anything and everything you can think of. And Christian and Faithful, they go through Vanity Fair and they're noticed immediately by everybody who's there. Why? Because they won't partake. And they won't even look at the wares that are being offered. And, and this makes the people angry because it's strange that somebody could come to Vanity Fair and not want to partake in all of its pleasure. Now, the town people, they don't appreciate that Christian and Faithful don't particularly care what they think anyway, right? And they won't give in to peer pressure, so they put Faithful on trial, and he ends up martyred because he won't give, he won't give in because of his devotion to Christ. Friend, you are now, at this moment, making your way to Vanity Fair. All the allures. And I wouldn't say it's more than ever, more than ever, but incessantly these squares <laughs> show us and our TVs and these billboards, they're, they're all incessantly calling to you. Endlessly. Your peers, your co-workers, your fellow students, I mean, endlessly calling to you, begging you to partake. And like Israel, we convince ourselves that these idols are relatively harmless. I mean, can, can you imagine Israel gets to the promised land and they see that there's a God to protect the crops? And they think, I need to eat, right? So what do they do? It's not so bad to sacrifice this idol. That's what idols do. And after all, everyone else is partaking in them, right? And we can take good things and we can make them ultimate things. And we can want desperately to look for approval from peers because unlike Christian and faithful, we care what they think. Desperately. And we want to fit in. What is an idol? Tim Keller defines it like this. What's an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Okay, here's a diagnostic test that he gives. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. Ask your, ask your heart, take this test, okay, in your heart right now. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What is it that occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Do you develop potential scenarios about career advancement or material goods such as a dream home or a relationship with a particular person? He says, one or two daydreams do not indicate idolatry. Ask rather, what do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? Ask yourself, do I feel that I must have this thing to be fulfilled and significant? When you ask questions like that, when you pull your emotions up by the roots, as it were, sometimes you'll find your idols clinging to them. What is it for you, I wonder? 
It's something. Is it relationships? Finding a finding fulfillment in your partner? Is it fitness looking good for others? Is it your family, your kids, and their worldly success? Is it approval, getting others to notice and applaud you? Is it a name or recognition? Is it power? Is it money? Is it importance? Something is trying to compete with God in your life. What is it? Friend, deal honestly with your heart. You have something, as I have something, that you are drawn to worship. It might not even be a bad thing, but you've made it an idol by making it an ultimate thing. You've looked at it and you said, in your heart, if I don't have this, my life is not worth living. But don't you see that you don't need it if you have Christ? So behold his beauty and see that he is everything you could ever want and more, and then you could see the things of earth and enjoy them in him rather than for their own sakes. What is your idol? Identify it. Don't entertain it. Don't let it hang out in your heart. Smash it. Be brutal with it. Destroy it. Stop bandying about with it thinking you're stronger than you are like a delusional alcoholic who repeats the refrain, I can quit whenever I want. Because it might look nice, but it'll kill you. Thomas Brooks said, it's like we're fish and we see a bait and it looks good and we have a taste for it. But in it, Satan has hidden the hook. In all idols, this is a case. No matter how alluring they are to our eyes, the look, the hook lays beneath to ensnare you. And we need to lose taste for the bait. Friend, identify your idols. Pray for God to reveal them. Then lean on the Holy Spirit to help you smash them. Fourth, finally, the Lord is faithful. Grow in him. The Lord is faithful. Grow in him. And this comes in verses 29 and 30. Notice that God says that even though he will drive out the people from the land, that he will not do it all at once. Did you notice that? Or even over the course of a single year. He says, verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Essentially, God knows that the present size and makeup of Israel is not enough to fully uh, possess the land at that present moment. They need time to grow. God says that they need to be patient. They must be ready for a slog. It will take time. Unlike sin and the idols of the world, God will pay what he promised. Do you believe that? Do you? Judas. I think I broke this with my ring. Uh, (laughs) Unlike the idols of this world, God will pay what he promised. They need not rush the process. They need not take things into their own hands. They need not let their impatience drive them to foolishness or think think through idolatry that they could take a shortcut. God has repeatedly told Israel and their ancestors, isn't this true, that he will guide them into the land that he promised. Isn't that true? Over and over, and we're only in the second book of the Bible. Over and over again. And throughout Exodus, he's promised that it would be so. And even here in our present text, he repeatedly, did you notice this? He repeatedly talks about what he will do for them. Look, look, I send an angel. I prepared a place. I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. I will blot them out. I will bless your bread and water. I will take sickness away. I will make you fruitful. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you. I will confuse them. I will send hornets before you. I will drive them out. I will set your border. I will give the inhabitants over to you. In 13 verses, this is how many promises he makes. I send, I prepare, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He's saying, just trust me and I'll do all of this for you. These these unworthy Recipients of grace, these stiff-necked people, God will do all of these things for them. And he's saying, it's going to happen, but it will be on my time, not yours, because I know best. And all the things we've talked about today, today in our time together, they have to do with growing in the Lord. 
Growing and following Christ and depending more and more on him than ourselves. Growing in obedience, growing by smashing our idols and trusting that Jesus will be our all in all. And friends, all of that is a slog too. None of these things are instantaneous. It takes time because faithfulness, it's not a one-time act. It's a lifetime of followership and intentionality. You are passing through Vanity Fair at all times. And so you need to remember the gospel and go back to Jesus and go back to Jesus and go back to Jesus. And friend, can I tell you, you're going to blow it. And you're going to chase idols. You're going to sin against God and others. You're going to fail. You're going to get frustrated with yourself and with how long this growing process is taking. But friends, take heart. God is not mad at you. He's not frustrated with you, but he cares about you. And he looks at you with a loving pity like you do your beloved child who messes up and struggles and his arms are always open for you to run into. Patience, friends. It takes time to grow and everyone grows at a different pace. The key is not speed. The key is that there is a forever striving in you to get more and more of Jesus. And when you fail, to go right back to him and continue to follow and obey and serve and grow. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out to us in verse 20. Okay, look again at verse 20. God says that the angel will guard them and bring them. And if you write in your scripture journal or in your Bible, you underline, highlight, whatever. Circle the place I have prepared for you. Okay, the place I have prepared for you. This isn't just talking about the land itself, okay? This is temple language. This is talking about God's intent to dwell with his people in the tabernacle and then the temple. In Exodus 15, at the song by the sea, right on the other side of the Red Sea, it says, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. God's purposes in creation continue to unfold, don't they? Remember what we've said throughout the series? God's purpose for the world, God's plan for people of redemption. We can summarize the whole point of the whole Bible and the whole world is this, to have a people for his possession who will dwell with him and who will spread his rule throughout the earth. And that's his point here. It's not just to go get a group of ragamuffins to some piece of land. The point is that he desires to be with his people and for them to spread the good news of that fellowship with the world. And so God is telling them here, he's preparing a place for them to fellowship with him. But, uh, bad news. Israel would end up blowing it. Did you guys know that? God would indeed come through on his promise, as he always does, but I want you to later today, go read Judges chapter two. Because we see there that Israel did the opposite of what's commanded in this passage. They worshiped the Baals. They thought they could worship God and all these other idols at the same time. They failed to give God exclusive loyalty and they failed to trust him. All the Old Testament tells of their repeated failure and God's repeated grace. Israel failed to spread God's rule. They failed to be a kingdom of priests. They failed to be an example for the nations. They failed to be a people of justice, like we looked at last week. And they forfeited their inheritance. So what did God do? He sent the only true and real Israelite to the world, who is also literally God with us. And he tabernacled among us, says John 1. And he kept the law, and he rejected Satan's call to divide his loyalties, and he died for lawbreakers, and he rose, and he ascended, and he sent the Holy Spirit. Why did he do all that? So that God can have a people for his possession that he dwells with, and we call those people the church. God's purpose for the Israelites was to bring them home. Bring them home. Where is home? God is home. And when Jesus told his disciples, you know this passage, when Jesus told his disciples that he must leave, 
in John 14, he said something very similar to what God says in Exodus 23, 20. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Friends, that's not about going to a disembodied heaven when we die. That's about a new creation, the new heavens and new earth where our bodies will be renewed and raised like Jesus was and will dwell with our triune God forever and ever. That's why heaven is so good, because that's where God is. And he intends to bring us into eternal fellowship forever and ever and ever. Now, in light of all of this, is obedience a duty or a delight? Is service to this gracious and glorious God who moved heaven and earth to dwell with you so that you could dwell with him forever a burden? Is striving to know him more the desire of your heart, knowing the more you get of him, the more beautiful he will become to you? In light of his glory, is smashing idols not an urgent task for us all? You have choices to make today, and you'll make them. And for the rest of your life, in light of these glorious truths, what will you choose? Allow me to close with one of my favorite quotes I've ever uh, of all time that I've shared with you before, and I'm sure I'll share it with you a bunch more in the future. But John Owen said this. He said, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Here in what I live, here in what I die, here on what I dwell in my thoughts and my affections, until all things here below become as dead and deformed things, and in no, long, in no longer any way calling out for my affections. Make that your prayer today and every day, and look to our glorious Christ, and listen to him, and follow him, and smash idols in his name, and because of who he is, and what he's done, he will bring you safely home.